Welcome to the AJHP podcast series. The American Journal of Health System Pharmacy is the official journal of the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, an association of pharmacists committed to helping patients make the best use of medications. For more information about AJHP, please visit www.ajhp.org. This is William Selmer, contributing editor of the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy, speaking with Dr. Jennifer Askew-Buxton, who is the primary author of a paper entitled, A Novel Collaborative Practice Model for Treatment of Mental Illness in Indigent and Uninsured Patients. Jennifer, let's begin our conversation by having you describe the practice setting. Kate Fear Clinic is a clinic in Wilmington, North Carolina that serves low-income uninsured patients in a four-county area. Those patients have to be within 200% of poverty level and not have insurance or alternate care coverage. We have approximately 1,000 to 1,100 patients as of the end of this past year. We serve all different types of patients. Uh, We have about 65% female and about 45% Caucasian patients, remaining being majority Hispanic and African American. And we do have 7.6 active staff members and 371 volunteers, which is phenomenal in our regard. We have provided 16,000 hours of volunteer service to date. So we really do rely on those volunteers heavily, but we do have some paid staff as well. Well, that's an impressive number, a number of volunteers. I imagine then there are a number of pharmacists among those volunteers. Is that correct? And there are pharmacists that do any number of different services with us. We really try to cater the service that the pharmacist will be providing to the skills that they possess, as well as the needs of the clinic itself, and try to match in that way. We do have a full-time pharmacy that dispenses medications to our patients that are seen in our clinic. It's right here on site. We have many pharmacists that volunteer in that area. We have other pharmacists who work with our medication assistance programs, and we do have some paid staff in that area to work with them as well. We have pharmacists that have come to us from inpatient settings or administrative areas, and we have management needs that they assist us with. So we do. We have pharmacists across the spectrum who are able to participate depending on their experience and their interest. Now, you serve as co-director of the mental health clinic at the Cape Fear Health Clinic. Uh, Tell us a bit about that position. And as I understand it, this is a full-time employed position, not a volunteer position. Is that right? This position actually grew out of a volunteer position. I originally started volunteering with the clinic as a pharmacy student and resident back in 2003-2004 timeframe, and I continued to volunteer with the clinic not only in the mental health program, but in the dispensing pharmacy. And as that program grew and developed, the clinic actually applied for a grant for a full-time pharmacist. And as a part of that pharmacist duties, they wanted specifically to look for someone who could do some administrative work, could do some clinical work, and could also assist with the dispensing of medications in the pharmacy and oversee that process. So my co-director role with the mental health program is now rolled into my formal grant-funded role, which is Deputy Director Pharmacy Services. Tell us a bit about the background on the establishment of the mental health clinic, specifically within this broader Cape Fear health clinic. 
this actually came out of the advent of the sheer need for the service. Back in my early years of volunteering at the clinic, I was mainly spending my time dispensing in the small pharmacy we had. At that point, we were actually located in the basement of an old school building, and our space was very limited. I think our pharmacy looked a lot more like a closet. We had a psychologist who was volunteering with us, Dr. Tony Puente, who's actually an author on the paper as well. Dr. Puente was seeing patients for therapy and testing needs. And I thought my space was small, but he was seeing patients in a fencing equipment closet at that time. Dr. Puente would see the patient and stop by the pharmacy. And this was occurring from time to time. And after a bit of this, I approached him and said, what's going on with this situation? How come you keep stopping by to discuss your patient cases with me? He was looking for medication management. It depended on which physician was volunteering that evening, whether or not he would be able to get an opportunity to speak with the physician and get an assessment of the patient and get some medication therapy management provided for that patient by the physician. And it was really dependent on who was there, how much time they had, that sort of thing. So this went on for a little while and Dr. Puente would come to the window with a patient chart and review it with me. And he would ask questions like, you know, what kind of SSRIs do you have available? And rather than just list what was on the shelf, we started getting into case discussions well, what are the symptoms of your patients? What other medications are they on? Do they have any allergies? That sort of thing. As time passed and I continued to make these recommendations, really these recommendations were made to prevent Dr. Puente from having to go to the medical provider, come back to the pharmacy to determine what medication therapies we had available, and then return to the provider a second time in order to achieve medication therapy management um, I said, you know, there's provision in North Carolina, the Collaborative Pharmacy Practice Act, where I can actually see patients and assist you in managing their medications once they've achieved a diagnosis, be that by you or by a supervising physician. So that's how we actually came to decide that it was worthwhile to pursue the Clinical Pharmacy Practitioner Act agreement. We actually sought out a supervising physician. So I have a supervising physician that reviews all of my chart notes discusses my cases with me and so forth, and joins us as part of our collaborative team. That provider, Dr. Bridger, is also our medical director here at the clinic, and he's providing that service voluntarily as well. So mm -hmm. at that point, we had a core group, myself, a psychologist, and a physician who were working collaboratively to provide both therapy and testing, diagnosis, as well as medication management. So give us a little more sense of uh, the operational aspects of the mental health clinic. How often does it uh, convene and uh, patient load? And how long has it been operating in this particular mode? Well, we actually had the luxury of being able to move out of our basement school building area in 2007. We're now on a three-building campus. One of those buildings is a medical treatment building. The other is administrative and pharmacy, and the third is our dental provisions. On a day, any evening when we would be having clinic, it would be a Wednesday evening. We have volunteers that range from students at the local university all the way up through interning social work and therapy professionals, all the way up through licensed and credentialed professionals who may be seeing patients at any given time. We also have, uh, have the good fortune of having a retired administrator that comes to us from a university who's also a licensed clinical social worker who really coordinates our front of the house staff. 
So every evening, it looks much like a physician's office might look. She's there coordinating, getting the patients checked in for their visits, making sure everyone has the tools and supplies that they need. In any given evening, there may be four, five, six therapists or providers providing counseling or medication therapy management. We also may have some neuropsychiatric testing done. That's actually done by Dr. Puente's graduate students and is supervised by him. So what we do is utilize the administrative space here at the clinic because we don't necessarily need a physical assessment area. So while medical care is going on at the medical clinic, we're actually doing mental health care here in the administrative area. And it looks much like you would anticipate any traditional medical practice to look. The patients check in, they're seen, they have a flow sheet and a charting, uh, coding, CPT coding form that they are using when they're checking out, and their follow-up appointments are made according to the recommendations of that provider. Well, give us a sense of how the pharmacist is then integrated clinically into the care of these mental health patients. There are several different ways that we integrate them, um, especially now that I'm full-time with the clinic. At this point, I am actually sitting in on the appointments with the psychologist in order to listen to the background, the collection of information, to ask the pertinent questions that I'd like to ask in regard to managing medications. This will be on the first visit that the patient comes to us. What we then do as a team, myself and the psychologist, Dr. Puente, is he'll decide on a working diagnosis if that has not already been made. We'll discuss the patient a bit, talk about what therapies or testing may be necessary and what medication therapy may be necessary. So unlike some other clinics where I've worked, it is not that the provider is necessarily coming to me just to ask for a recommendation after having given a diagnosis. I actually am getting to be able to participate in the data collection and the patient assessment portion when we see that new patient. We then send that patient out to one of our other licensed providers for therapy if that's indicated. We start medication therapy management if that's indicated. And our volunteer pharmacists are actually available in the pharmacy to provide counseling, to take care of any dispensing issues that might occur, and to further support the patient in that regard. Jennifer, you mentioned um, the fact that uh, the pharmacist in this practice setting is operating under North Carolina's uh, collaborative practice uh, program. I wonder if you could put that into perspective a little bit. Uh, Do you have any sense of how many pharmacists are engaged in the state uh, in this program and how many are specifically involved in mental health activities? To my best knowledge, the North Carolina Board of Pharmacy estimates that there are approximately 100 active CPPs in North Carolina that are practicing. Mm -hmm. Of those, they don't actually keep statistics on the specific practice area, but I am aware of two other mental health practitioners that hold their CPPs, so that would be three of us. Those other two, to the best of my knowledge, are working in the inpatient psychiatric arena. So I would be one of three, I believe, in North Carolina in mental health and the only one in an outpatient or ambulatory environment. Now, do you have any special training or credentials in psychiatric pharmacy? I am actually looking at studying for the BPS exam in psychiatry. Mm -hmm. I do have to maintain an additional CE requirement for maintenance of my CPP agreement. I have to have 35 hours of CE every year 
and half of those have to be live. And they do have to be specific to the practice area in which I'm utilizing my CPP agreement. Okay. So I do get quite a bit more education in that, that area just by nature of the CPP. In North Carolina, we also have the CPD program, uh, Continuous Professional Development, in which we're allowed to use the Plan, Do, Study, Act model to guide our seeking out of our own CE programming and our own education. So I also have looked into and will likely be utilizing that model to start to expand my knowledge and expertise in areas of mental health that I don't see as often in practice. Well, a major point of your AJHP paper is reporting on the assessment that you did of patient outcomes. Could you give us a sort of a high-level summary of the type of evaluations you did here and what those results were? We used the AUDIT, um, A-U-D-I-T, Alcohol Abuse Assessment Score, the PHQ-9, which is a common measure for depression, and the SF-12, which is a measure of the quality of life of an individual patient. We looked at those measures, both at the time of enrollment in our program and then post-treatment with our program. Unfortunately, we did not find any statistically significant differences with the three measures, but our study had some significant limitations in terms of being able to identify those differences. We were really looking to previous information that's been provided through pharmacist-managed depression programs in which these scores have been used. And so we do have a limitation in the sense that not all of our patients were diagnosed with depression, although we were using the PHQ-9. We also did have the limitation of having, a bit that, again, that very small pre- and post-group. So we really don't feel like the study was adequately powered to really detect that difference. That being said, we still wanted to seek out publications because we thought our practice model was unique, and anecdotally, we felt as though it was making a difference for patients, and now we've come to realize that we need to focus some attention on proving that theory and justifying our service. So, um, a priority will continue to be evaluating the results uh, from a patient outcome standpoint, if I understand you correctly. What about uh, your economic assessment of your program? What can you say about that? Well, what we wanted to highlight with our economic assessment is not only any type of reduction in healthcare cost, which is another figure that we could extrapolate. Um, we would like to look at prevention of ED visits, hospitalizations, decrease of the overall medical care cost to a patient. But we just wanted to hit the ground just at the basement level and talk only about the value of the services that we had provided on the market. So what we did was used Medicare reimbursement scales, and we looked at the amount of service that was provided, the number of prescriptions that were provided, the value of the neuropsychiatric testing that was provided, and so forth. This is all of the service wrapped into a bundle that we were able to give away to our patients that did not have the means to pay for it. So we had about fifteen, sixteen thousand $16,000 in care that was provided and approximately $123,000 worth of medication that was provided. Those numbers justify the services that we're providing. With this kind of data, we can go to a grantor, we can look to a potential funding source and say, look at what this free clinic is doing for low-income uninsured patients in the southeastern North Carolina area. Is there a way that we can partner with you to sustain this service? 
To what extent are pharmacy students involved in your program? I have taken pharmacy students as soon as I was able to, straight out of pharmacy school. Um, I love having learners in the program. I think it keeps me on my toes. I think I learn just as much from them as they learn from me. I've always had students volunteering in the program. Even when I was not working full-time here, I would actually make, as part of their required rotation at my health system with me, that they must come to the clinical practice site and volunteer as well. We have our second month full of students from some of our local universities who will be spending full month rotations with us. They actually participate in the mental health clinic by taking medication histories, um, checking in the patients. They have case studies with me where we discuss the therapy management of an individual patient. They're also taking part in the other services that the clinic provides. So they're assisting with our medication assistance programs. They're assisting with counseling and MTM that's non-mental health specific. So there are ample opportunities for any student that's interested, particularly in mental health. Um, We also gear their individual student projects toward areas of therapeutic interest or areas of practice interest. So I have had the opportunity to have some pharmacy students work with me on developing some patient education materials or some medication therapy management quick guides for other practitioners as a part of interest in mental health. Jennifer, my final question for you has to do with um, your experience with collaborative drug therapy management. Can you draw any lessons in general uh, that perhaps would help other pharmacists who are uh, contemplating moving in this direction? Likewise, uh, any particular lessons that you would summarize related to collaborative drug therapy management with mental health patients specifically? I can certainly tell you that one of the most important conclusions that I've drawn is that the interest, my interest in collaborative practice was not only welcomed by physicians and other physician support personnel, it was welcomed by a number of healthcare providers by clinical social workers, by psychologists. They saw this need to make not only a medical home for the patient, but a mental health home for the patient. And I would have probably jumped on the opportunity sooner had I known that I was going to be greeted with such open arms, um, not only by physicians, but by others who would like my assistance in caring for these patients. Right. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer. I really uh, appreciate the time you've taken to speak with me, and congratulations on your excellent program and on the acceptance of your paper by AJHP. This is William Zelmer, AJHP Contributing Editor. I've been speaking with Dr. Jennifer Askew-Buxton, who is co-director of the Mental Health Clinic at Cape Fear Clinic, Incorporated, Wilmington, North Carolina. The title of her AJHP paper is A Novel Collaborative Practice Model, for treatment of mental illness in indigent and uninsured patients. That concludes this podcast. For more information, please visit www.ajhp.org.